welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today on Episode 3 of Season 5, we're grateful to be bringing you a recording of the conversation between CBC Radio's Amanda Pfeffer and Dr. Gabor Maté. A celebrated speaker and best-selling author, Dr. Maté has written several best-selling books, including the award-winning In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, When the Body Says No, and Scattered Minds. He's also the co-author of Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. Amanda spoke with him at a sold-out evening on October 1st, celebrating his latest book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, co-authored with his son, Daniel Maté. Here's their conversation. Yes, it's full. I haven't seen a church this full <laughs> in a very long time. Um, our guest this evening, uh, many of you already have the book in your hands. I saw you walking in with it. Uh, Gaber Maté is uh, a physician who uh, was born in Budapest, Hungary. He moved to Canada as a child uh, in the 1950s and he got, uh, he became a medical doctor. Uh, most of us know him, uh, he worked first in palliative care, but most of us probably know him from his work uh, for more than a decade in the downtown east side, working with people who are challenged with addiction, HIV, and um, mental health issues. And so his first books were informed by uh, um, the insights that he made working with that population through that period. Uh, and he has uh, written a couple of books since then. This is his most recent, The Myth of Normal, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Gaber Maté. Thank you. <laughs> like a rock star. <laughs> um, welcome to Ottawa. Thank you. Thank you for uh, being with us. Congratulations on the Order of Canada. Thank you. Uh, in, you got it in 2018, but you were invested in uh, April this year. So they tell me. <laughs> Which I think means you're allowed to wear the pin, but I don't know. I've been wearing it for years. <laughs> I just wanted to read a little bit from uh, that. It says, um, Dr. Maté is well known for his belief in the connection between mind and body and health, uh, uh, body and health, as well as for his innovative approaches to treatment. Notably, he worked with patients challenged by drug addiction, mental health, and HIV in Vancouver's downtown east side. Throughout his career, he has been a passionate advocate for social change in the prevention and treatment of addiction. So this latest book, is this sort of like an extension of that, the myth of normal? It's really a summation of everything I've learned as a physician and also as a human being, and um, observing not just health from the personal viewpoint of the individual suffering ill health, but from the point of view of the society which generates a lot of ill health. So I, in this book, I take a really broad view of 
of human health, human nature, human needs, human development, um, human pathology, and the human healing. So it, it's a broader and a much broader, um, much deeper um, look at everything that promotes or undermines health. You call our, you say that we have a toxic culture. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, so in the introduction, we give the analogy if um, in a laboratory, if you were growing microorganisms in a broth designed to support their thriving and proliferation, you'd call that a culture. It's a culture medium. And uh, if those microorganisms were developing well and proliferating, proliferating as expected, that'd be a healthy culture. If they were falling ill in large numbers, um, you'd call that a toxic culture. I'm saying that in our society, culture in general, the nature of this culture is toxic because it... Um, well, you can look at the statistics. If you look at the number of children being diagnosed with all manner of mental health conditions, the rising tide of childhood suicide, particularly in the United States, um, if you look at the drug overdose, in British Columbia, more people have died of overdoses than of COVID. Um, if you look at the, the rising number of people with autoimmune disease, uh, particularly women, actually, uh, for certain reasons, um, if you look at any of these health statistics, and if you realize that we can look upon human pathology as either the representation of some individual ill luck or genetic misfortune, we can look at it that way, but it's completely unscientific to look at it that way, or we can look at it as a product of life experience and a manifestation of people's existence on this world, then you have to look at, well, what are the factors that are driving more people to be ill um, and at unease in the world? Well, then it's the culture. So if you take that laboratory analogy, we're living in a toxic culture. I mean, in, in a state, in the United States particularly, which is the world's richest country, and thinks of itself as the apex of human civilization and human possibility. 50%, something like 70% of adults are on one medication or another. I mean, it's unbelievable. And Canada is not that far behind. So the book is called The Myth of Normal. Yeah. And which is the thesis, I guess, behind the book. So what is the thesis? So, um, as a physician, you're trained to understand the parameters of health. So, human life is not possible beyond a certain normal range of conditions. If your blood pressure is below or above normal, you're not going to live very long. If your temperature falls below or runs too high above normal, you're also not going to live. If your blood acidity changes beyond a certain range, that's the normal range within which, which is both healthy and natural. So norm in that narrow medical sense, is associated with what's healthy and what's natural. But we make an assumption about normal in society that what we used to, what is the norm, is also healthy and natural. Well, that may be true in the narrow medical sense, but it's certainly not true in the social sense. So a lot of things that we, we take to be normal, there's nothing healthy or natural about them. So that's the myth of normal. That's the one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that we look upon people who are ill as abnormal. 
are they? Or is their illness a normal response to abnormal circumstances? I mean, if somebody is abused as a child and they become addicted to soothe their pain, is that abnormality or is that a normal response to an abnormal circumstance? If, just to st state a Canadian study, men who are sexually abused have tripled the rate of heart attacks, which they do, regardless of whether they smoke or drink. It's not about lifestyle, it's about the impact of trauma. Is that heart disease an abnormality? Or is it a normal response to something abnormal that should never have happened in the first place? So that's the second aspect of the myth of normal. The third is that we tend to assume that there's those sickles and there's the rest of us normal ones. Whereas in my own experience of myself and certainly my observation of society, there's a large spectrum on which we all belong. So that this whole idea of normal and abnormal in a social sense certainly can't be equated with the strict medical sense of healthy and natural. You know, um, there's a lot of uh, storytelling and autobiographical material yeah. in this. Um, you talk about, uh, you make insights about your, uh, yourself, your relationship with your wife, yeah. uh, your children, um, your mother, your grandparents. Yeah. And I wanted to start with the story of your grandparents uh, mm. and uh, your origins in Eastern Europe, uh, living through the Holocaust. And why is it important to understand uh, the impact of what happened to your grandparents hmm. to your story? Because we now know that my grandparents, those I don't know, died in Auschwitz when I was um, five months of age. And um, which meant I had a very traumatized mother. Which meant that I was a traumatized infant and I passed on my trauma to my children. So it's really important to understand that trauma is multi-generational, that it's not personal, that it's not any one individual's fault, that it's not any generation's fault either, but that we do pass it on unwittingly, uh, without meaning to, with full love and devotion to our children. As long as we haven't worked it out, we're almost certainly gonna pass it on. And that's why I that's one of the reasons I include, and I also want to talk about the specific impacts of trauma, which I do, but the general point is the transmissibility of trauma, uh, which is almost inevitable when we haven't dealt with the trauma, we haven't known how to deal with it, or we haven't even realized that it's there. You have this interesting um, interaction with a colleague at a conference, yeah. um, a man named Bessel, I think it yeah. is, and uh, he leans over to you at the table and says, yeah. Gabor, um, you don't need to drag Auschwitz around with you everywhere you go. Yeah. You didn't even know what led to that statement, but that statement, uh, you said, uh, really had a, an impact. You said, in that instant, he saw you. So what did you mean? So Bessel van der Kolk, I'm sure, is, how many of you know who he is? Quite a few of you would, yeah. So Bessel is a psychiatrist. He's probably the world's most foremost trauma expert, and his book, the Body Keeps the Score, which is about trauma, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for like 75 million years, you know. And uh, <laughs> last, week, last week he was complaining jokingly that, oh, I've displaced him, you know, because I was at one point ahead of him on the New York Times bestseller list. But, but that's okay, next week I'm behind him again, so the universe is unfolding as it should. 
But so Bessel and I were speaking at a conference at Omega in New York. And I don't know what prompted his, and I gave my presentation on addiction. And we were having lunch with a couple of other people. And I don't know what prompted his remark, but he peers over his glasses across the table and says, Gabor, you don't have to drag Auschwitz around with you everywhere you go. And intellectually, I kind of knew what he meant, but it took me a few years to actually get it on a more body-mind level. And what he was saying was, it's a very positive thing he was saying, this is about the healing of trauma, that the worldview and the emotional state that were imprinted in me way back then, they don't have to define the way I am in the world forever. I can let go of that. I can learn to let go of it. So that's what he meant, is that the past doesn't have to define the future. In what ways did Auschwitz, for instance, uh, have an impact on you? Like, in what way were you dragging it around with you? Well, Auschwitz and all the other circumstances that beset my first year of life, which is uh, we're living under Nazi occupation. Had we lived in the same city as my grandparents, which we almost did, my mother and I would have been sent to Auschwitz. So it was that close. And, um, you know, I don't know that I have to tell you the circumstances of Jewish life under the Nazis in Eastern Europe. So all that, um, well, three years ago, four or five years ago, I was in a ketamine training session. Ketamine is one of these psychedelics that's actually it's the, the one that's legal to use now for the depression and so on. So I was in the ketamine training program and I was injected with the stuff which sends you, I don't know where it sends you, but, uh, <laughs> but, but at a certain point from out of nowhere, this is a room with 10 other people lying on mats with the ketamine and each of us has a sitter sitting beside us, making sure we're okay. All of a sudden I, I yelled out, I hate the world. And everybody congratulated me afterwards, you know. <laughs> <laughs> For that insight. But I, I've, I've had this baseline of, of, of resentment for the world, you know. And uh, this is despite all kinds of good luck and all kinds of beautiful experiences. But that's kind of my baseline. So I, I'd wake up in the morning, morning usually for decades, resenting the world. Now, that's the, that's the imprint of an infant living under very difficult circumstances, you know? So, that was one impact. Of course, the other impact is that I've always been motivated to find out why do people suffer? And why do we inflict suffering on one another? And how can we heal that? So, you know, there's, there's a wisdom in trauma in the sense that learning from it can be can be the deepest learning that we do sometimes. But at the same time, it very much imprinted my attitude towards life itself, um, a certain kind of moroseness that some people pick up about me, even as I sit here totally jovially, and you know, uh, um, it, it certainly imprinted my parenting, uh, my husbanding, if you like, you know, so it had a deep impact. You know, you had this opportunity to actually um, get hold of your mother's diary. I'm yeah. not sure how, how yeah. that was, but uh, what... Um, and it gave you insight about who you are as yeah. a child. What did you learn from that diary? What, 
what, what, tell us about the, the well, period the, of time that it... Well, there's, my mother kept this very fitful diary to, to, for the first two years of my life, and, but very intermittently because of the conditions. And um, there's two entries that I quote in this book. Um, one is quoted in the first chapter, which she wrote when I was in April of, 2000, uh, April of 1945, which is when I was a year and a quarter old. You know, and she's writing retrospectively. And she says, I don't want to tell you how horrible those times were. Looking back, this is after the war. The Germans were expelled from Hungary in January of 45, when I was a year old. So this is in April. This is her entry for April. And she says, I don't want to recall the horror of those times. But I do want to tell you that the worst of it was when I couldn't see you for five or six weeks because she had to give me to a stranger in, her, in the street, a Christian woman, because where I was living, I wouldn't have survived. Which explained a lot of my, a lot of the way I, I relate to, to intimacy and to love, because when I saw her again, after the five or six week separation, um, I didn't look at her for days. And you think, well, why not? Wouldn't the child be happy to see the mother again? But actually, when you look at the studies on what happens, little kids separated from mothers over time, I, I, never mind kids and mothers, they have a dog. If you travel for a long time, if you go for a day or two, they're just happily jumping up and down and waving their tails. But if you stay away for two months, they won't look at you when you come back. And it's the intensive, instinctive defense of the organism that says, I was so hurt when you abandoned me, I'll never open myself up again to being that vulnerable. So you, you tell this story about um, its impact on you as, a, as, a, as an adult. Yeah, uh -huh. so, so that shows up in my adult life. So that should, should, in some ways, that's the essence of trauma. It's like it's a wound that hasn't healed and you touch it and you're reacting like it was just wounded all over again. That's what we call being triggered, by the way. And so between my wife and I, when there was some disappointment on my part, and I talk about this terrible time when age 71, she forgot to pick me up at the airport. I mean, how can you survive that, you know? And, uh, uh, and I react like I was an infant, and I don't even look at her when I go home. So that imprint is in my brain. Um, that's the one citation from the diary. The other <clears throat> is much more general. It's got nothing to do with Nazis or fascism or war. She's writing this when I'm two weeks of age. We're still in the maternity hospital. This is before the Nazis occupy Hungary. This is January 44. And she's writing, my poor little Gabor, my poor little son, my heart is breaking for you because you've been crying for the last hour and a half. It's now quarter to two, and you've been crying since 11.30 but I promised the doctor I wouldn't feed you till two o'clock in the morning because I'm feeding your schedule, and so I'm so sorry. You know, now forget the Nazis and forget the war, you know. Just don't pick up a kid when they're crying. That's enough to traumatize them. Because what's the message the kids get? That his needs don't matter. That he can't even trust the people that most love him. You know, and how many parents in this society are told not to pick up the kids when they're crying? Now you tell a mother baboon not to pick up their child when they're in distress, you know? So when I talk about the, the normality, the toxicity of normality, 
so many of the ways in which we parent kids in our society, they don't have to be under conditions of deprivation and war, just the way we are told to parent our kids run against the need of the child, and that's traumatizing, that's wounding. So those are the two paragraphs from my mother's diary. Did you get, how did you get access to them? Was it late that you, later in life? That you well, I've had the diary, it's interesting, I've had the diary for decades in my possession, but first of all, um, it's completely illegible. I mean, you can't read my mother's writing, um, at least I couldn't. But even more interesting, perhaps, is that for decades, even when I picked up the diary, my head would start spinning. Like, literally, like, like I'd get dizzy. Like something in me just didn't want to go there. Mm -hmm. I knew there was something in it that was so painful. And then what happened was that a Hungarian film crew did a documentary about me maybe four years ago, five years ago, I, I don't know when, and they asked to look at the diary. And I, of course I showed it to them. And unbeknownst to me, they photographed every page, and they took it to Hungary, and they had somebody painstakingly with a magnifying glass read through it and transcribe it into Hungarian and type it out and send it to me. So that's in Hungarian, so, so I have it on my computer now. That's why. That's how I got access to it. <laughs> I, I, um, you also talk about how, uh, you know, that learning, that imprinting, yeah. had an impact and that you're passing down to your children. Sure. Can you describe that? Sure. So, so I've told this many times before, but it's very simple, really. Um, the message I get my mind doesn't pick me up when I'm crying. And the message I get when my mother is so stressed that she can't attune to my emotions, not because she doesn't love me, I mean, my God, she loved me, but just because she can't attune. And then particularly the message I get when I'm handed in the street to a total stranger. By the way, let me tell you something amazing. I was in Budapest in, Mar in May of this year, as I will be again in a few days. And one of the rules that my team has is you don't book me into any hotel where there's no swimming pool. Okay? Because you, you don't want to talk to me if I haven't swum. It's okay, I've swam this morning. Uh, well, there's no swimming pool in the hotel, but there's a swim club just around the corner. So I go around the corner with a ticket and I swim every morning. And it took me three days to realize that the pavement and the house where my mother gave me to the strangers just right across the street. So I'm here and swimming for my health, literally across the house where I almost lost my life. I mean, who designed the script, you know? Um, but where was I going with this? <laughs> I, I, I do have ADD, so what, what was I talking about? I was talking about your children. Oh, my I children, thank you very much, yes. So what's the message I oh, get? Yeah. What's the message I get after all these events is that I'm not wanted. And who's not wanted? Somebody who's not lovable. The children are narcissists, not in any pathological sense of the term, but in the sense that they take everything personally. So I'm not wanted, I'm not lovable. That's not a conscious thought. That's more like an unconscious state of mind. If you'd asked me, does my mother love me? Of course. I never would have doubted it, and she, of course she did. But was I lovable? Not on the, um, 
deepest level. Well, if you're not wanted, here's what you do. It says, anybody who wants not wanted, you want to you want be wanted, go to medical school, you know? Because now they're going to want you all the time. Uh, when they're being born, when they're dying, and every crisis in between. But of course, whenever you try and prove to yourself something that only some inner quality of self-acceptance can give you, it's never enough. In fact, it's runaway addictive, because it gives you a temporary hit of being wanted and being important. But it's only temporary, because you haven't filled that hole within. You never can fill it from the outside. It doesn't matter how important you are. I mean, how many times have you seen this in the world? How, many, how important, how popular, how successful somebody is. If that, as John Lennon sang, if there ain't, there ain't, no, way we, ain't no way you can hide if you're crippled inside. That emptiness that's in you is going to be in there. So temporarily you fill it, and because the fulfillment is only temporary, it's addictive. You have to keep going after it and going after it. So I'd, I'd accept any number of patients into my practice. doesn't matter how many babies I was going to deliver that month. If another one went to come to me, I'd say yes, which means I was up all night working the whole day. What message do my kids get when I'm not around? And when I am around, I'm irritable and tired and depressed. Mr. Daggett is exactly the one that I imbibed, which is that they're not wanted. Mm -hmm. So they get that message, and that's wounding, that's a trauma for them. Not to mention, I got bad news for all of you, or maybe good news, as the case may be. We always partner up with somebody at the same level of trauma that we're at, in terms of spousal relationships. I don't care what gender I'm talking about. Your spouse is always going to be at the same level of trauma as you're at. If there were one level difference, you would never be together which means that I marry a woman who, with all the positive qualities between us, nevertheless, has got the same level of woundedness that I do. And this is when we become parents. And so we play out our woundedness in all kinds of conflicts and so on, and, and our children are living in this atmosphere. So my son, with whom I wrote the book, with those brilliant assistants, I could not have done this book, but he writes about it in the book. He used to have this nightmare of the... Uh, floor disappearing from under his feet, which is a metaphor for the, for the uncertainty of what the emotional atmosphere will be. You could be very loving and friendly and jovial, and all of a sudden you can turn on a dime, you can become very stressed and tense. Mm. So this is how we pass it on. So you wrote the book with your son, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? Um, well, it had its challenges. Um, <clears throat> actually, Daniel and I have a two-book contract. This is the first book. The second one, this is Gabor Mate, MD, with Daniel Mate, but the second one will be Gabor and Daniel, or perhaps Daniel and Gabor, because it'll be called Hello Again, a fresh start for adult children and their parents, which is a workshop that we do together, including we'll be doing it at Omega in New York at the end of October. We've been doing it for a few years. Um, and that's because we've had our challenges, and we've learned a few things along the way. Not that it's all complete, by the way. I don't know that it ever is. But So those challenges showed up at times in the writing, especially if I get tense, which I did get tense over this book, because I really, at times, really lost heart, that I just can't do this. I've taken on too much here. It's too big, it's beyond me, and the world will finally see just how deeply incompetent I actually am. You know, and which, of course, was never going to be the case. 
Because even if this book was a failure, it doesn't make me a failure. But when you identify with something, then you think if it fails, you fail. And in this society, we're taught to identify with our achievements and our work, you know, and even knowing better, I fell into that trap. Now, when I get tense, what does that, Daniel, what does that remind Daniel of? Tense times. See, here's the thing, like as I pointed in this book, people's nervous systems are interactive. Like we, the psychiatrist Daniel Siegel talks about interpersonal neurobiology. We think, and Bessel says, we think we're individual creatures. He says we barely exist as individuals. We barely exist as separate individuals. And that's no more, that's never more true than in a family. Mm-hmm. So when I get tense, then I get tense, and you know. But having said that, it was a beautiful working relationship. By the end of it, it was just so usually mm, res- respectful and. We just learn to appreciate each other's strengths and to supplant the other person's weaknesses. You know, so it was a great process. Yeah, people people talk about when they when they get to be together with fa- some family members, they kind of revert back to their old yeah. relationship. So did you did you come out the other side with a new relationship with Daniel? We came out the other side with a much more mutually respectful and allowing the other person to be the other person mm-hmm. without needing them to be different. This was. It's such an ambitious book. Uh, so you go from your sort of uh, your clinical experience with addiction, and um, and and you you kind of take a look at the whole culture, and you take on issues like race and gender. Mm. And what how what was that like? How comfortable were you sort of entering into a- these areas that you completely comfortable? I really was. I mean, I this took ten years to research. I collected twenty five thousand articles on all kinds of different topics, like you mentioned gender. So why is it that women are much more likely to get autoimmune disease than men? Like 70, 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. Um, I talk about how in the 1930s or so, the gender ratio of multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease where the immune system attacks the nervous system, it's as if the Canadian army attacked Canada. the gender ratio was almost equal, now it's over three women to every man. So that tells us that the usual medical explanations of purely external factors, such as diet or, or, or climate, um, or certainly genetics, just don't wash. Because the genes don't change in the population, and why should they change more for women than for men? So then. But because I'm oriented to look at the larger picture, for me the answer is almost self-evident. You know, and, and I've written before about the relationship between stress and health. Well, in this culture, it was finally, what can I say, it was so satisfying to sit there and express this point of view and to have a platform to do so in this book. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the chapter on gender, it's called Society's Shock Absorbers. And that's cribbed from a New York Times article during COVID, where New York Times did this study, or, or, or either they reported a study or they did an article about how women in general, married women particularly, took on the stresses of their children and their spouses during COVID, and they felt guilty if they couldn't ameliorate the stresses of their families. Now, in an earlier chapter in the book, I point out 
but the people prone to get autoimmune disease are people who are overly dutiful, they take on the emotional needs of others, ignoring their own, um, they tend to repress their healthy anger, they tend to fear disappointing others. Well, which gender in this society is given that role? To absorb other people's stresses, to repress their healthy anger, um, to be responsible for what other people feel. That's why women get more autoimmune disease. It's got nothing to do with biology as such. It's got nothing to do with genetics. Um, it's purely cultural. But culture affects the biology because we are, as one physician pointed out, biopsychosocial creatures, which means that our biology is inseparable from our psychology, and obviously our psychology is inseparable from our social relationships. So therefore, all that affects our biology. Now, I was just jump, chomping at the bit to say this already on a broad social level because there's been literally decades and decades of scientific research buttressing and documenting this point of view, and it's still not even whispered about in the medical schools for the most part, you know. So, to answer your question, it was great to get into it and to finally have a platform to declare this. Yeah, you spent some time talking about men also who yeah. face a sort of um, their yeah. own stuff, um, long list. And um, I, I wonder if there's, you know, perhaps some women who might have discomfort thinking of themselves as victims in that scenario. No, should, should we be thinking of ourselves that I way? I don't call anybody a victim. I don't define anybody as a victim. I just point out what goes on, what's going on. The whole point of the book is that people should wake up and, and do something about these dynamics that are constricting their capacities and who are forcing them into narrower channels, then really the, their lives should flow in. So it's, I, I don't see anybody as a victim of anything. I mean, at least terrible things happen to people. But it's not that I'm pointing this out so that we should feel sorry for people. I'm pointing this out that we should do something about it. Mm. And certainly, women have been waging, I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft in the 18th century talked about how women are forced to be unnatural to themselves in order to be accepted. I'm just pointing out the physiological impacts of that. Yeah. And women have been fighting, of course, this battle for a long time. So I don't know, it's not a question of victimhood. You, um, you take a stab at trying to sort of psychoanalyze people like Stephen Harper and... Uh, I didn't psychoanalyze them. Or there is some analysis of... Uh, I talk about the psychology, but I don't psychoanalyze. I mean, psychoanalysis, just to be, just to be I'm sorry to be interrupting, but yeah. psychoanalysis is a specific um, form of therapy where you, you know, where you, where you talk sort of spontaneously and then the, uh, then the specialist analyzes you. I think it's mostly nonsense, but uh, uh, however, argue back. Uh, well, Freud has some <laughs> Freud has some deep insights, but he was also a very troubled man himself. Yeah. Who, who uh, Freud? When first Freud wrote about what he called neuroses or people's emotional problems, he linked it to trauma, because he listened to his patients in Vietnamese society, and his women told him that they'd been sexually abused by their fathers. Mm -hmm. And he wrote about it in 1895 or so. And then he got scared of his own shadow. And he backtracked. 
And he said, well, the reason, these women are fantasizing um, about sleeping with their fathers. So he became very cockamamie in his theory, theories. But he was a pioneer in the sense of looking at childhood experience and the role of the unconscious. Now, when it comes to Harper and Justin Trudeau and Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Clinton and Donald Trump, I was just pointing out that many of our political leaders um, are traumatized people. And their trauma is well known. Not only is it well known, it's like staring us in the face. I mean, Bessel van der Kolk said about Trump that he's a poster boy for trauma. And if you look at his, um, the way he behaves, his grandiosity, his um, suspicious, aggressive, greedy view of the world, you can trace it back to his horrific childhood. Um, it was, it Hillary was Clinton also had a heck of a traumatizing childhood. And the reason I mentioned Clinton is, I mean, what if I told you guys a story? It's in the book, but let me tell you a story of a four-year-old girl who walks into the mother's home, who actually is bullied by neighborhood kids. And she runs into her parents' home seeking protection from her mother. And the mother says, there's no room for cowards in this house. Now you get out there and deal with those kids. How would most of you see that experience of the four-year-old? But this was told at the 2016 Democratic Convention. She was boasting about it. How cleverly my mother taught me to be resilient. And this traumatization of a four-year-old was celebrated on public television, watched by millions of people, narrated by the voice of God, Morgan Freeman. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and nobody batted an eyelash. Nobody batted an eyelash. Is it an accident? So, but what's the real message to the four-year-old? Not that it, she's not a coward. I mean, you, again, you tell the mother bear to chase away a bear cub who's coming to her for protection. You just tell a mother animal to do that. It goes contrary to every instinct that we have. That same resilient candidate puts up with her husband's philandering and even blames herself for it. That I didn't see how stressed he was. It was my job. To, I mean, typical trauma response. And 60 years later, when she's running for the presidency, she develops pneumonia. Do you remember what she did with it? Nothing. Didn't tell anybody until she collapsed in the street with dehydration. The message she got was that I'm alone. You better suck it up. You're all on your own. There's no help for you. Don't even ask for it. And this is, this is regarded as normal. So you, you, take, you take this look at leadership, political yeah. leadership, as part of you know, this yeah. uh, look. And I wonder if um, there's some concern that, um, that the, con the focus on leadership perhaps doesn't look at some of the um, structural issues, uh, whether it's a systemic racism yeah. or uh, you know, colonialism or, yeah. or you know, other systems uh, that create the toxic culture that we have today. Well, that's only one chapter in the book, yeah. you know, as you know, and uh, we do talk about there's a chapter on racism. There's a chapter on how race gets under the skin. Yeah. A, there was a new study literally three weeks ago, but it wasn't news to me, but it was a new study. 
that showed that an episode of racism diminishes the activity of the immune system, just instantaneously. And chronic racism, well, guess what? Is there some accident that in this country an indigenous woman is six more times likely to, to have rheumatoid arthritis than anybody else? This in a population that used to have no autoimmune disease whatsoever. So we talk about racism, we talk about the inequality in this society. Inequality itself is a well-studied parameter of health, regardless of income. So it's not just that there's the rich and the poor, it's that inequality itself is a predictor and a marker of ill health in a society. Mm -hmm. uh, in a society that's materialistic and values wealth and acquisition and power, it's like Robert Sapolsky, who is a very well-known neuroscientist, biologist, neurobiologist at Stanford, himself a very fine author. He said that um, it's very stressful to ha have your nose rubbed into what you don't have, but other people do. So inequality itself is a, health, is, is a risk for health. So, yeah, we cover all, there's a whole chapter on, on all that stuff. So the political chapter is just meant to show that the people that we elect in, 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 into power in this society are palpably traumatized, and they can't help but act on their traumas on society itself. Yeah, I guess what I'm wondering is, is if this, these, the systems that we have created in yeah, society... it's systemic. ...that, yeah. are, that the leadership is, is uh, even with the best leadership, um, you know, is there something to say about this, the systems that we've developed... I totally agree ...that are not you. personal? That are, in other no, words, no, not no, run all, by an individual. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think of a system as, uh, as almost like a biological organism mm. intent on its own survival, uh, which means that it'll select out those people to be at the top who best serve its, its interests. And it, you don't have to have conspiracy. I mean, not that there aren't conspiracies. I mean, there are, you know, documented ones, such as to sell junk food to poor people, or to deny the harm of cigarette smoking, or to deny the role of greenhouse emissions on the climate. I mean, those are conspiracies proven and documented, not even controversial. But on the whole, it's not that the system runs on conspiracies, it just runs in a way to perpetuate itself. Yeah. So, you know, I tell this story in the book, in an ant colony, um, the workers and the queen have exactly the same genes. The queen is not genetically different, but she ovulates and she's bigger and she lives longer. But you take the queen out of the ant colony through a process of literally of elimination and some pretty hostile, hostility, one or another or two worker ants now become the queen and their body changes. They start to ovulate and they live longer so that their biology is determined by the needs of the hive. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not quite as determined by the needs of the hive as, as, bees are, as, as, as ants are, but in many ways, we're very similar. So that the system itself creates... Um, Loneliness? Eric Fromm talked about the uh, social character, the social character that a society needs to inculcate in its members in order to maintain itself. So I agree with you, it's systemic. Yeah. You talk, spend some time talking about loneliness. Loneliness, yeah. Yeah, so in the last 40 years, there's a documented loneliness epidemic in Western societies. And um, 
to the point where in Britain it's, it's a health issue. Loneliness, severe loneliness is as much of a risk factor as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And people are lonely, they get sicker faster and they die quicker of their illnesses. And to the point where Britain has had to appoint a minister for loneliness. But of course what the British Conservative Party Minister of Loneliness will never do is to look at the actual causes of loneliness, which you can trace to the onset of, of, of neoliberalism, which was begun by the sainted Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in North, in North America, and continued by all British governments since then, the cutting down on social programs, the um, taking over the commons, the increasing competition, the increasing inequality, all these things drive loneliness and that's the base of it. So they want to deal with, as always, they want to deal with the effects, but not the causes. Because the causes, as you say, are systemic. Yeah, the number of single households, for instance, yeah. uh, and how that's grown. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about the pandemic then, since we're at low The pandemic? Sure, yes. yeah. What is your sense about the long-term impact of the pandemic? Yeah, so the short-term effect we've seen, quite apart from the virus itself, the loneliness, um, the stress on families. So in some families, being forced to stay with your, with your kids, those families that were fortunate enough, it was beautiful. A lot of parents have told me, my God, I got to stay home and see my children's milestones, which by the way, in original human society, always would have been the case. But that was such a pleasure, you know, to learn, to see how they play, how they learn, and so on. In other families that didn't have those emotional and perhaps financial resources, the, the rate of child abuse went up. And more kids ended up in emergency wards with injuries. Domestic violence went up. Alcoholism went up. So it all depends, you know, the story that we're all in this together. No, we weren't in all, all in this together. And people who were poorer or of color were more likely to get ill from COVID and more likely to die of it. So that there was never, we're all in this together. But if you ask what we could learn from it, there's a lot of lessons from, that we could learn from it. For one thing, does anybody still doubt that human beings need each other? Does anybody still believe that by nature we're individualistic, aggressive, selfish creatures? That story that sustains the capitalist worldview of human beings. I mean, do we need any more proof than COVID to see how we suffer when we're cut off from each other? So that's a lesson we could have learned. Um, inequality, the facts that I just mentioned, that whether in Britain or the US or in Canada, who was more likely to get ill? You know, it's these people that are socially dis... We like to use socially disadvantaged. That's a nice euphemism. So we learned about inequality. We also learned, I mean, whatever you think of government policies or the vaccine, I don't care which side of the debate you might be on, but there was an effort to socially work together for some common goal. And in the beginning, it felt kind of good, you know, to stand on your porch and every night bang your pots and pans to, you know, to celebrate the healthcare workers. And we saw these beautiful videos from Italy in the beginning, where people would get on their balconies and serenade each other, you know, 
So there was this movement of people for communication and connection. So we saw these glimmers of possibilities. Whether we've learned those lessons, I don't know that in this system those lessons will be absorbed and put into practice. We also, you know, in the beginning was this kind of everyone was, there yeah. was an e equality yeah. among, in terms of the, uh, you know, yeah. COVID was everywhere. Yeah. And so I wonder, and then we had uh, George, the death of George Floyd. Yeah. And there have been George Floyds before that. Yeah. But it happened right at the beginning of the pandemic yeah. when everybody was in yeah. this full open yeah. empathy mode. Yeah. What, what, what does that tell us about the possibilities? Well, look, um, I think it speaks to the basic goodness of so many people, their willingness to stand up for something they believe in, their moral pain at injustice, um, their capacity at least to come together, at least temporarily, to try and make a difference. Um, the system, of course, is designed to withstand all those. Um, so nobody talks about defunding the police anymore. And there's been a deep backlash to this Black Lives Matters, you know, movement. But it did show what's possible, and it showed at least on the part of many people who would never would have demonstrated before. All of a sudden, they were out there in the streets, outraged by the death of George Floyd, which of course was only known to us because a teenager happened to take a video of it. As you say, it wasn't the first time. And for a while also, um, and, and maybe on a more permanent basis, um, there's been more attention to pay to the issues of race. I mean, in this country, I think we're paying more attention to it now. Not nearly enough yet. Um, but, yeah, it did have that impact. And just sort of, uh, just a couple more questions. One yeah. is uh, um, about the class of 2020, 2021, 2022, these yeah. kids who lived through the pandemic. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, they suffered a lot. Yeah. Mental health went, you know, yeah. went up, etc. On the other hand, their language around mental health yeah. is, uh, un, you know, I've never seen that. They're yeah. their, the facility yeah. around those issues. Yeah. Um, their capacity to join together and yeah. fight for... Yeah. their rights. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts about the resilience of that class and, and what we can expect from them? It's a bit too early to say, I think. Um, we'll have to see how that resilience plays out. I, I don't predicting it one way or the other, but I'll have to see how it goes over the next few years because they're going to run into difficulties and challenges and we'll see how much support they get and how cohesive they can become. I, I can't speak to that one. The part of your comment that I want to pick up on is this increased awareness of mental health issues. That's certainly a healthy thing, the destigmatization of mental health conditions and so many more people in positions of power sometimes um, or positions of public notice, celebrities and so on, are willing to, you know, uh, you know uh, any number of celebrities like Alanis, Alanis Morissette, who is just a wonderful artist. I had a chance to see her in Vancouver recently, but she's very open about her mental health challenges, um, and, and others have been as well. Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, these people interviewed in Alina Dunham, 
who talks about her childhood sexual abuse and its consequences on her health, mental and physical. That's all a great thing. <clears throat> What's still missing from the public conversation, and that, that's very much one of the intentions of this book, is to introduce, not to introduce, but to highlight this concept of trauma, how, in my view, underlying all mental health conditions, uh, we don't have genetic diseases, which is sort of a fond belief of many in my profession, without a whole lot of proof for it. Um, what we have here is the outcomes of a toxic culture. What we have here is the outcomes of trauma, that you can trace trauma. You know, the, there's a British um, psychologist, Dr. Richard Bent, not Richard Bentall, I think, a member of the British Academy, who said that the evidence linking childhood adversity to adult mental health issues is as strong as the link, or as strong as the evidence linking cigarette smoking with lung cancer. And by the way, I could make the same case for most chronic physical health conditions as well. And yet in my profession, the average medical student still doesn't get a single lecture on trauma and its relationship to illness, mental or physical. Shocking and true. This is in the face of multiple decades of evidence. So there's an almost impenetrable wall there. No, it's not totally impenetrable and there are some moves in the right direction, but it's going to be a long time before the profession catches up with the science. And, and one of the intentions of this book is to bring that home to the public and to as many physicians as are willing to look at the actual evidence. Um, I have one last question, but we're going to take your questions as well for about 10, 10 minutes or so. Sure. Um, and we have a microphone. Uh, somewhere, and uh, so you can line up at the microphone and ask a question, but before we, we get to that, um, the last section of the book is all about how um, sort of forward thinking and, yeah. and uh, opportunities for change, and, yeah. and you meet uh, Bettina Gehring, Gehring, the, the Bettina Gehring, Gehring yeah. and yeah. she is the, um, uh, as you were making a docu the documentary film, I wasn't making it. So, you know, the same documentary filmmakers that did that film on me in Hungary about where my mother Darius comes in, mm -hmm. they also have her in another film. Okay. And so, so, so they met her, they met me, and then they thought we should talk to each other. And so she actually, this is, Bettina Goering is the grandniece of Hermann Goering. And Hermann Goering was the Nazi Reich Marshal, Hitler's second in command, really, and uh, the head of the Luftwaffe, responsible for the bombing of Britain, and her grand, his grandniece, born after the war, was carrying the guilt for that family's trauma and, 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 and monstrosity. Anyway, she contacted me, and her and I had a conversation, and that's what yeah, you referred you call, to. You called it a miracle. Yeah. Why? Well, look, uh, for two reasons, actually. First of all, that the conversation even happened. I mean, who would predict that I'd be talking to the grandniece of this monstrous human being who was the, one of the pillars of the regime that murdered my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And that we'd be talking to each other from a point of view of healing and mutual respect and mutual curiosity. The very fact that that even happened is sort of a miracle. Um, the other aspect of it is that 
I really did get some healing energy from that conversation. And so that's why I call it a miracle. Yeah. yeah, you say that nothing about your history had changed, but that... Um... Well, thank you for making that point, and that's actually the essential point in my book, is that trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is a wound that you sustain. Um, as my son said on CBC Current yesterday, trauma is not the cross-check, it's the concussion. So it's not the thing that happens to you. It's what happens inside you as a result, mm -hmm. which is the good news. Because if the trauma is the wound that you sustained rather than the thing that happened to you, that wound can heal at any time. If the trauma was what happened to me 77 years ago now, that will never not have happened. But if the trauma is that as a result, I developed a certain view of the world and a certain view of myself, that can change at any time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you can't change the past, but you can certainly change the um, perspective that you automatically deride from that past because you couldn't help it at the time. So we don't have to be, we don't have to be ruled by what Another psychologist friend of mine calls the tyranny of the past, the tyranny of the past. And finally, you know, the, the Buddha, who saw interconnections in a big way, he talked about the interconnected, interconnected core rising of phenomena. Everything is in everything else. The, the leaf, he pointed out, contains the sunlight, photosynthesis, the sky, the, the water, the earth, the minerals, you know. And he also said in the first um, aphorism in, his, in the collection of his sayings called the Dhammapada, and he said that everything is thought in the lead. In other words, he's saying that with our minds we create the world. Broadly speaking, not just our conscious thoughts, in fact, mostly with our unconscious thoughts, our unconscious beliefs, we create the world that we live in. The, po the point that Buddha did not make, and that's thanks to Freud and to modern psychology, is that before with our minds we create the world, the world creates our minds. Which means that we all generate our lives from a worldview that was ingrained in us, inculcated in us, and with brains whose programming was prepared by our earliest relationships, beginning on our mother's emotional states in utero. That's what we live out in how we relate to ourselves, how we think about the world, how we relate to our spouses or our children and so on. So, my point is that while we can't be responsible for the world that created our minds, we can take responsibility for our minds with which you create the world moving forward. That takes work, that takes self-awareness, that takes a real compassionate curiosity about ourselves, but I can tell you personally, not that I think I'm finished this journey, uh, but I'm not perceiving the world the way I did. Emotionally, I don't perceive it the way I did. You know, I have a lot more gratitude now. I didn't know what gratitude even was. I mean, I could be grateful for a gift, but not as a, you know, the kind of gratitude that the indigenous people used to wake up with? and they just thanked creation and creator. That kind of gratitude. I didn't know that was even possible. So, yeah, we don't have to be determined forever 
by the world that determined our formative years. We can let go. That's the message. That was CBC's Amanda Pfeffer in conversation with Dr. Gabor Maté. Signed copies of his latest book, The Myth of Normal, co-authored with his son Daniel, are available at Perfect Books on Elgin Street. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.